Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and take our seats. At least go to our seats. Once you're at your seat, please open up your Bible or turn on your Bible. Browse for your Bible, however you do it, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And if you're able, please stand as the scripture is read here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Here is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, about two and a half years ago now, William Shatner, Captain Kirk, went into space for real, not just on a TV show, but for real. So he was on the Jeff Bezos Blue Origin rocket with three other people. I'm sure he paid a lot of money, or at least he was paid a lot of money one way or the other. He becomes the oldest person to travel into space at 90 years old. Now, in his book, as he's describing what it was like to, to be part of that experience, he described the drilling and the practice all the days and weeks leading up to this event. He described one time where um, he had to go up in the 11-story uh, launch, whatever, launch t- uh, tower. The rocket wasn't there, but this tower, 11 stories hall, tall. They're just trying to get used to this over the situation. And, and one guy uh, with Blue Origin, kind of matter-of-factly, says, that's the safe room. Safe room, what? What's the safe room? Well, the safe, safe room is where you go if the rocket blows up. <laughs> so then they get to the day of the launch, and another Blue Origin rep comes by very nonchalantly, matter-of-factly, as if this happens all the time. There's an anomaly with the engine. So it's going to take a little while. But actually, 30 seconds later, they're like, everything's fine, false alarm, or they fix the anomaly, one or the other, I don't know which. So all of this leading up to the moment, William Shatner has, has a kind of a process of faith that he walks through. So you have the, the understanding side. Now, what exactly are we going to do? What am I being asked to do? And then you have the, the trust side, kind of the basic factual trust. You know, you're trusting these scientists actually know what they're doing. And one way or another, he has some basic confidence that these guys know what they're doing. They know their math, they know their physics, and they're going to get me up and they're going to get me back down safely. But at the end of it, there's this other part of faith, which is where you actually entrust 
yourself completely, your life, to those guys, those scientists, those men and women who designed this rocket. You strap yourself into the rocket, and that's the final act of trust if you're going to fly into space. All right, not only do I understand, not only do I think there's a, there's a factual truth that it's possible to do what they're doing and these guys can't do it, but I'm actually going to sit in the rocket, strap myself in, and say, okay, let the countdown begin. This morning, as we, as we live life with Abraham for a couple chapters, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, we're going to see that same kind of process of faith. This understanding side, this factual acceptance side, or this truthfulness side, but then there's that final entrust. I'm going to entrust myself to the living God. Faith in the promises, faith in the goodness of God, faith in the gospel, which is good news. The gospel means good news, requires those steps of faith, and we'll, we'll think about that this morning. We're dealing with the covenant of Abraham, which is actually not given in a single passage. It's actually given in four passages. It's spread over a big, a big swath of Abraham's life. So in Genesis 12, God makes promises. Genesis 15, God makes more promises. And then there's this ceremonial cutting of the covenant, which we'll read about. And then in 17, there's the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And then in chapter, Genesis chapter 22 is the, is the promise about uh, Isaac being the, being the means of blessing, or I should say the seed of Abraham being the means of blessing the nations of the earth. And so these four moments, we get the covenant with Abraham. So it's, it's a large sweeping covenant that actually expands all of human history. We'll reference that a little bit. We're in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is written by the man Moses. Moses is uniquely equipped to write a book like this. It's actually part of the Pentateuch. He wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books, the Torah. He's uniquely skilled to do this work as a man who was educated in the finest schools of Egypt, you might say, and then is a Hebrew as well. He's a Jew. He's a man a descendant of Abraham and part of the faith tradition of Abraham. But his, his literary expertise is evident all throughout the Pentateuch, and we won't go into that, too much detail about that, but it's, it's vivid, excellent narration. This is, a, this is a skilled man. And in the book of Genesis, we get from creation, there's nothing, and then there's everything. <clears throat> so we get creation all the way to where the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, become 70 people. Not quite uh, a multitude, but 70 people at the end of Genesis, and then silence, and then we get the book of Exodus. And all this is part of the story that takes us from creation all the way to Canaan. So the Deuteronomy ends on the riverbank across from the land of Canaan, the promised land, where Moses dies, and then the people in the book of Joshua enter the, the promised land. In this series, right from the start, we're hitting different facets, foundational critical ideas. And this morning, our critical idea is faith. What does it mean to live the life of faith, to walk in faith before the Lord? Now, if you're not a Christian, you may have used at some point this phrase, you just got to have faith. And you meant something by that. You know, maybe you meant, I just got to hope that things are going to get better. I got to be optimistic. I got to think things are going to work out. I just got to have faith. Or you just got to have faith. You're trying to encourage a friend. And today we would say, yes, you've just got to have faith. But what we learn about faith in the Bible is it has to be very specific. It's not just a broad, general, vague faith. 
but it's actually faith in, in specific words and deeds that are given to us by the living God. So what does a life of faith look like? We'll have three points. The gospel given, point one, the response required, point two, and then the covenant unfolding. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, just as Philip exhorted us, we pray that you would grow our faith. Use your word to increase our faith, to, to, to locate our faith in specific things. Not in just vague confidence in you, but specific words you've said and promises you've made to us. And because of Christ, we can have absolute confidence. We can entrust ourselves to these promises you've made. So build our faith, Lord. And if we came this morning without any faith in you whatsoever, if that represents a, a, a heart in this room or a heart of someone who's going to hear this sermon, we just pray, Lord, that you would give your gift of faith to that person. We pray that they would go from death to life, from unbelief to belief, from not believing to believing in you, the living God, and may that change their present and future forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the gospel given. I want to get some context in Abram's, at this point he's Abram, I'm going to say Abraham because it's confusing not to. He becomes Abraham in chapter 17. So then we can stop being confused and just use Abraham confidently and freely. But in chapter 15, he's actually still Abram. He's 75 years old when he left Haran. So in chapter 12, when we heard those promises about the land, the nation, and the blessing, he's 75. Now in chapter 16, so we're doing 15 and 17, the chapter between those, chapter 16, He's 86 years old. So that's when Ishmael is born. So chapter 15 seems to be about the time that chapter 16 occurs. So we'll say he's in his late, mid to late 80s uh, in chapter 15, mid 80s. When you get to chapter 17, he's 99 years old. So periodically in Abraham's life, he gets these dramatic promises and words from the Lord. And his life takes up the big middle third of the book of Genesis. So from 1127 to 2511, that's all Abraham. Abraham. So after, after 2511, we read about his descendants. And what happens to Abraham reverberates throughout all human history, all biblical history. These promises that are made about the land, the nation, the blessing. We live in the good of those promises. Jesus Christ in a sense, came to fulfill those promises for the people of God. And these three promises reverberate throughout the chapters that we look at today. We'll see that. So the gospel is given. The gospel is given in word and deed. And we're going to think first about this gospel given in word. So go back to chapter 15, verse 1. And we see Yahweh, the Lord, taking initiative with Abram. So after these things that uh, Benjamin preached on last week, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now we'll see it's not just a vision. There's a, there's a physical, practical event that happens here, but appears in a vision. And he says, fear not, Abram, fear not. You know, we haven't heard the, we haven't heard the, the Lord speaking to Abram in a while. And the first thing he says is, fear not. Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. It's blessing, good news. 
But it's the Lord. Note, it's, note that it's the Lord taking the first step. It's the Lord who takes the initiative. God always takes the initiative with us. He demands and asks for a response from us, but it is he who takes the first step always. And here, the first word is a word of encouragement. But then you get Abram speaking to the Lord. And we don't have any quoted words by Abraham to the Lord at this point. There's, a, there's one reference to Abraham calling on the name of the Lord in chapter 13, but we don't have any quoted words. So the first quoted word we get from Abraham is this, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, a man we know nothing about, absolutely nothing about. But that's the heir of Abraham's household at that point. Now, this isn't, this isn't a word of, of, of unbelieving complaining, sinful complaint. This is just an honest word. The walk of faith is a, is a, is a walk of honest relationship with the Lord. So Abraham models that for us. Oh, Lord God. And there that, oh, Lord God, is Adonai Yahweh. Adonai Yahweh. Yahweh, my master. And then he just says something factual in verse three. Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my, uh, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, not my, my biological descendancy, but my household. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And then the Lord speaks promises. And these promises will sound familiar. We know that the land, the nation, and the blessing are the three big promises. And so the Lord's gonna reiterate the promise here of a people. And so he says, and so the Lord, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your, your very own son shall be your heir. Now it's been a, a dozen years at least since he first heard the promise about becoming a nation. He still doesn't have a, have a single child. But the Lord once again promises, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he brings Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven. Obviously, it's the middle of the night. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The estimate of, of you know, the naked eye looking into a, a vivid, clear night sky, moonless night sky, the estimate is that you can see about 5,000 stars, you know, give or take, but about 5,000. So he looks up and we'll assume it was a beautiful, clear night 5,000 stars are in the sky. Now, the point is not a, a numerical precision. God isn't promising 5,000 descendants to, to Abraham. It's a, it's a massive scale. That's what, that's what the Lord is promising. The promise is big. The promise to you, Abraham, is big. And then you get this amazing statement that we know so very well as students of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, but it's never mentioned again in the Old Testament. And that's verse six. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God spoke a promise. Abraham believed the word spoken and then he was declared righteous. He was justified. That's the New Testament language Paul uses to describe this moment. He's justified. He's declared righteous approved, accepted by God. You have met my requirements. You have what is needed for rewards 
And I've removed from you, essentially, I've removed from you what you have, which would lead toward your demerits or your cursing or your punishment. It wasn't a work. It was faith. He heard the word spoken. He responded in faith. He was declared righteous. We're going to come back to that in the next point. The word spoken. So the gospel is given in words first, and then the gospel is given in a deed, in a dramatic deed, an unusual deed in our everyday experience, but dramatic, wonderful deed. So we'll pick it up at verse 7. I'll read through 11. So Abram, and this is helpful to us when we, we want to unpack faith. Oh, sorry, this is the Lord speaking, verse 7. So he believed the Lord, and he counted him as righteous. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord, so I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So I just, he just spoke the, the, the nation promise. Now he speaks the land promise. I will give you this land to possess. But Abraham has a question about that too. But Abraham said, O Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, not a, not a complaining, whiny question. It's just, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's really what is being said here. And so then we get this. And he said to him, the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer. So a, a, a female cow who had never had a calf. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham, so now we go from, we're no longer in a vision, right? So this is a, this is a conversation that's in the, in, the, in the physical reality. And he said to him, bring me a heifer. And then in verse 10, and Abraham brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That's unusual. When we're going to make a, a covenant with someone, we don't do that. Now, you have these animals that are gathered, and in some ways they feel random, just a random assortment, uh, unrelated. But if we read later in the book of, uh, in the law of Moses, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus, when we read about the, the specific sacrifices that Israel is going to make before the Lord, these animals pop up a lot. These specific animals. You see a lot of uh, uh, goats, rams, turtle doves, young pigeons. This specific assortment you don't find in any, any, any sacrifice in the law of Moses, except for here. But these are, these are familiar if you're, if you're used to reading the law of Moses. Now these are cut in half. And that's, that is odd, but what that, what the, it's, a, it's a covenant cutting ceremony. And so you take these animals, slice them in half, and you put the halves opposite each other so that there's a pathway down the middle. And the people cutting the covenant, the parties of the covenant are going to walk through that path. They're going to walk down that path up and back. And the point of that is you're basically saying, may I become like this animal if I break this covenant? May I be slaughtered and bloody in the same way that this animal is, if I break this covenant, may I never break this covenant on pain of death. That's what's being said here. Now, in a normal situation, you'd have a couple of guys or a group and a guy who are going to make a covenant, and they're going, to, they're going to just physically walk up and back. But what we see happen is completely unexpected for a cutting ceremony. 
So we pick it up at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So those 400 years of slavery in Egypt are being prophesied here, prophesied here. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So generations are longer, were longer then than we tend to think of them now. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant or cut a covenant, which is the, which is the Hebrew, cut a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. The Jebusites are those who inhabit the city of Jerusalem at that time. So what God is doing here in this theophany, this appearance of God, this, visit, this visitation of God, is he's taking on himself the curses of the covenant. He's saying, God alone is saying, may I become like these animals if I ever break this covenant. He does not require Abraham to walk the pathway between the animal carcasses. In other words, God takes on himself the entire responsibility to keep his covenant. It's entirely promise for Abraham. Now, there will be things uh, Abraham needs to do in response, but in terms of the final determinative factor for the covenant and the covenant promises, it's entirely up to the Lord. He's the one who takes it on himself. And he being entirely trustworthy, does not receive those covenant curses. And Israel is enslaved for 400 years, and Israel does return uh, to the land promised, and they wipe out all of those nations listed there, and they place the city of David right there where the Jebusites currently lived at the time. That's a deed of the Lord. This is the Lord doing something. It's good news. He's taking on himself the covenant curses so that we could receive the covenant blessings. He's making promises, verbal promises, and we respond with faith. That's gospel good news in word and deed. And that is the life of faith. God making that first move and and we respond in faith. He comes to us with promises. He comes to us revealing himself to us. He draws near to us. He acts And then he calls us to respond in faith, a very relational faith, just like Abraham had. How am I to know, Abraham asked. A very honest question with such promises. You know, I don't own any land, essentially. I don't own, certainly don't own the entire land, and I have no child. How am I to know that this is going to be? And then the Lord acts, performs this profound self-maledictory, where he takes on himself the self-maledictory oath. And we learn here, God's promises are always bigger than we can imagine. You know, offspring like the stars, that's bigger than we can imagine. Will I have a single child? Maybe we can imagine that. But 
offspring like stars. We can't imagine that. God's perspective is bigger than we can imagine. He's working for things that are going to take over 400 years to materialize. At this time in the life of Abraham, God is essentially stalling, waiting, working because of something that's going to happen over 400 years later. That's the sovereign God that we serve, that we worship, that we believe in. So that's the gospel given. Now let's dive into this response required. And in this chapter, there are no commandments. There's nothing Abraham is, is said to do. All he's asked to do, and it's implied, is believe. Is, so that's the first response, this response of faith. As I said, Genesis 15, 6 is, is one of the most important passages in Genesis, Old Testament, even in our Bibles, because of what it shows to us, which is the result of faith in the Lord and that what it brings to us in righteousness. Now, this faith has those, those three elements that I talked about earlier. There's an understanding component. Now, there's, there's a... Latin terms used for these uh, sometimes when you're thinking about the, the aspects of faith. I mean, faith does all of this simultaneously, but there is a sense in which it's helpful just to back up and see, okay, what am I doing when I'm believing? Well, one thing you're doing is you're understanding. There has to be some amount of understanding if there can be actual faith. So Abraham, Abraham is understanding the words of God. And, there's a, and then there's some sense in which this is true. So this, I haven't yet kind of put my trust in it, but there's, a, there's some sense which this is true. The one who is speaking is trustworthy. His words are true. But then there's that final step, the entrusting of yourself to those promises. That's where faith becomes saving faith. That's where faith in God becomes living and active, true faith. That's where you, you get, get in the rocket, you sit there and you strap yourself in and you say, okay, let's, let's go. Let's launch. Let's do the countdown. This uh, example of faith, so Philip quoted from Romans 4, and I'm going to hit Romans 4 in a couple other spots. But in Romans 4, what you, what you realize is that Abraham is the model of faith. The kind of faith we are to have is modeled by Abraham. And so in the first uh, five verses of Romans 4, Paul's transitioning. Everyone is a disaster. Everyone is a total wreck. There is no hope for you apart from God's grace. And then he kind of poses this, basically he's posing this question, is this contradictory to what we find in the Old Testament? And his answer is absolutely not. Abraham himself shows us that it's faith that saves us. It's not our own works. So this is what he says at the opening of, of chapter four, Romans four. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, you know, works of obedience, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, does works of obedience, his wages are not counted as a, as a gift, but as what is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Verse 5, they're incredibly important. To the one who does not work, you don't have works of obedience to offer to the Lord. But you do believe in him, believe in the Lord, who justifies the ungodly. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Not just justifying those who need a little bit of help. Not just justify those who, they have made so much progress by themselves. No, we believe in him who justifies the ungodly. Those are the ones who profess faith in Christ and are saved, are declared righteous. The ungodly who trust in Christ. Now, the ungodly who don't trust in Christ are condemned for their ungodliness. But the ungodly who trust in Christ are declared righteous. They are justified. Their faith is counted as righteousness. Now, this faith is not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. Now, when it comes to saving faith, you either have it or you don't. But even even the saving faith that you have is a dynamic thing. It rises, it falls, it's tested. Sometimes you feel distant from the Lord. You're not quite sure of where you stand before the Lord. It's very emotional. It's tied to our, sometimes our ungodliness rains down upon us once again, and we're tempted to think we're not, we're not the Lord's. It's up and down, as I said. We ask that question, how am I to know, as Abraham did. But nonetheless, faith is required. Faith is the, is the response required first and foremost. But that's not the only response. So now we get to chapter 17. Turn to Genesis chapter 17. And we see here that right along with faith is obedience. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. There will be good works attached to it. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. And we see that in chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. That's a call to obedience. That's a call to allegiance. That's a call... In a sense, it's not something more than faith, but it is a call to an active faith. Now, to this point, Abraham had obeyed the Lord in a very external, basic manner. So he was told to leave his homeland, and he did. He went to the land of Canaan. He was told to assemble the animals at that, at that cutting ceremony in chapter 15, and he did. But now the ask is bigger. Walk before me and be blameless. A holistic, in a sense, undefined, unconditional allegiance to the Lord. He is the master and I am his servant. I'm his, really, I'm his slave. I'm his happy slave. I'm his happy, blessed slave. He's the king. I'm his subject. So faith and obedience, you know, trust and obey. That's what the Lord asks of us. And we get in trouble when we separate these things as, as if it's possible to have saving faith that doesn't obey. And it just isn't possible. You want to think of these, they're really, it's like almost like two wings of an airplane. Maybe that's not the best analogy, but it's almost like that. Which wing do you want? Well, I think I'll take both wings. Thank you. So if it's true faith, it will lead to obedience. And if it's true obedience, it's sprung from faith. 
There is no obedience that doesn't spring from faith. Faith is what ties us into the power source, the energy source, who is God himself. And united to Christ, well, then our hearts are transformed. We, we overflow into obedience. Part of the obedience that Abraham is commanded to offer is circumcision. So let's, let's pick up in chapter 17, verse 9. 9 through 14, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be, uh, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So every male is included in this. Abraham won't be able to uh, fulfill this himself as an, as an eight-day-old infant, but for his household, he can do that. So when his children are born at eight days, at days old, presumably, except for Ishmael, it, it will happen at eight days old. Interesting that it's natural children, but also foreigners bought with your own money. There's a, there's a broadness to this covenant event. And there's a, there's a punishment. If you don't do this, you will be cut off from the people of God. Now for Abraham himself, his circumcision is a sign of his righteousness by faith. Now as Baptists, that means something to us. So in Romans 4.11, describing this event, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So remember, he believed and was counted to him as righteousness as an 86-year-old or so in chapter 15, and now at 99, he's going to be circumcised. Now, apparently, the Jews did not admit this practice. There were other, other traditions, other ethnicities that did practice this. So where, where it was born, we don't, we don't know. But it did become a key identity marker for the Jews, so much so that when you get to King David before he's king, when he's taking on Goliath, he has that, that powerful question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, what will become true is that circumcision of the body is, isn't enough. There needs to be what, what becomes called the circumcision of the heart. So Moses and Jeremiah both talk about circumcision of the hearts. Deuteronomy 30, Moses says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. And most of the covenants, not all, have signs that go along with them. We saw with the covenant of Noah, there was the bow in the clouds, rainbows. That's the sign of the, of the Noahic covenant. The Mosaic covenant, the official sign is actually the Sabbath. When you get to the new covenant, the sign is baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
Now, the reason to, to go into this kind of detail about circumcision is because this is, this is the, sort of the mother text for those who believe in paedobaptism or infant baptism. This is where they, they start the argument. And so I want to spend a few minutes on that and then respond. So here is, here is uh, the, basic, the basic logic of paedobaptism. And this would be from a, a Louis Burkhoff or Kevin DeYoung. Uh, those two would argue along these lines. There's, there are lots of variations on infant baptism, but this is their basic logic. So the covenant with Abraham, as I said, is the starting point. And this covenant is not just a national covenant, not just a physical covenant, but there, there was to be a spiritual dimension to it, and a, kind of a, an eternal spiritual dimension. And we would affirm that. So we are, we are children of Abraham by faith. We know that from Galatians 3. And we see the circumcision of the heart. So we know that there was intended to be a spiritual component, not just physical. And this covenant clearly includes children. So it's for you and your offspring. And so since infants were members of the covenant community, they received the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. And when a, the Paedobaptists turn to the New Testament, they see passages like Acts 2, and this confirms their, their framework. So in Acts 2, Peter says, the gospel is for you and your children. For the promise is for you and for your, uh, for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That notion that the promise is for you and your children, that's, that's their view. That when you have believing parents, those, believing off, those, those children, those offspring, are recipients of the covenant promises. Now, this, this, would, this would hold for Christian parents, or if you have at least one Christian parent. So they are the, as, the parents are members of the covenant community. And so, they should, so the children should receive the sign of the covenant as members of the covenant community along with their parents. Now, where Paedobaptists can, can really differ is when they explain exactly what has happened in that child. What are we saying about that child? And that's where there's a lot of difference. I mean, some would be, well, like Louis Burkhoff would basically say that they, their sins are forgiven because they're members of the covenant. But a Kevin DeYoung is, is not going to go quite that far. He's going to say they, the blessings are theirs if they remain faithful to the covenant. And by that, they mean the new covenant. So differences on, on what the, in a sense, what the children are with respect to the Lord. So here's a Baptist response, my Baptist response. I mean, overall, we would just say that's pushing the Abrahamic covenant too far. That there is a continuity between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, but it doesn't go that far. It doesn't go as far as, they, as they're arguing it does. And so like with any topic, you're going to look in the New Testament and see what does the New Testament do with that issue or do with that topic. And what we find there is, is as they would admit very freely, there's no example, a clear example of an infant being baptized. There's no command for an infant to be baptized And then you have this, this, this kind of obvious truth that there's no sense that parents sort of automatically create the spiritual reality for the child in the way that Paedobaptists are arguing. It is a blessing. It is a tremendous blessing to have Christian parents who are devotedly discipling a child. It is a profound blessing. But that doesn't make them a Christian. It just means they're blessed. 
they have opportunities to be saved, and if they do get saved, then, then, their, then their upbringing is going to be a huge means of grace for them, but it doesn't make them a Christian. <clears throat> and Paul even goes out of his way, in a, in a sense, arguing along those lines to say that biolo- your biological connection to Abraham doesn't help you spiritually. Faith is what helps you. And so in Galatians 3, know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, the blessings don't come just to the sons of the parents. They come to those who are of faith. Now, as I said, we would say that Abraham himself actually is a a perfect example of who should receive the blessing of of baptism. He believes in chapter 15. He's circumcised in chapter, chapter 17. So he's, he's, he's faith first and then the sign. And so we would say, yes, for Abraham himself, that, exactly, that's, that is our, our model. Now, sometimes Baptists are going to say that the reason there's no, there's, there's, there's no evidence of infants being baptized or discussion of it is because it was a missionary situation. It acts as a missionary situation. Once you have you know, Christian parents who are mature in the Lord, well, then, then it becomes relevant that they, they can actually disciple their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and then you can practice infant baptism appropriately. But I think that misses just the, the sheer span of time of the book of Acts. You know, it's over 30 years. There are thousands and tens of thousands of Christians in the book of Acts, in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, the church in Ephesus. These are developed, mature, uh, mature churches. And yet, there's no, there is no example of an infant being baptized. There's no discussion of it. There's no argument for or against it. It's not, it's, it's not mentioned. And then you have the idea that faith and baptism are always connected in the New Testament. So I'll read one verse. This is Colossians 2. So in him... We're kind of jumping in mid-sentence, but in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So this is that circumcision of the heart we were talking about. So in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. So it wasn't just the baptism, it was your faith in which you were raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Your baptism was done with your faith simultaneously present. And then faith and being part of the true church are connected. So in Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, we read this. Paul's in his greeting. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, to, together with all those who in every place, now this he's describing the church, who are the church. It is those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Whatever age you are, if you call upon the Lord, we welcome you as a brother or sister in Christ. And then final point on this, you get to the sign of the covenant, baptism. It is the sign of the new covenant. And so those who are uh, participants in the new covenant are those who, who should receive this sign. And so in Jeremiah 31, we read this about the new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with those, uh, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. So not tablets of stone, but within them. And I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now the law within them, that's regeneration. That's where you get power to obey you didn't have before, desire to obey you didn't have before. Knowing the Lord, and it's not just knowing about the Lord, but you know the Lord. I mean, in some ways that's reconciliation. We have a relationship. We know the Lord. And then forgiveness of sins. Our sins are wiped clean forever. We are united. And so all this is really speaking of someone who is united with Christ. These are the promises that are given to those who are united with Christ. He's the, he's the means by which the new covenant is inaugurated and that we receive the blessings of the new covenant. So this is for those who have been united with Christ. And so baptism is, is, it's imperfect. We know that we're not omniscient, only God is. But we, give, we baptize those who have some uh, profession of faith, which gives us some encouragement, some, some confidence that they've, shared, they've entered into that new covenant, that they know the Lord, that their sins have been forgiven, that they, that they are regenerated. They're living a new life. They're not perfect. They're just Christians. So the response required is to trust and obey. And as part of that obedience that we give to the Lord, to that response to the gospel, as part of that obedience, we baptize. So in two weeks, you have an opportunity. Roman Gross is being baptized. We're going to celebrate along with him and the Gross family. So there's an opportunity. Uh, if you're interested in being baptized, please let the office know. We will, we will talk to you and work out all the logistics with that. We'll have some kind of baptism interview, and then we will welcome you to be baptized on February 25th, if that uh, turns out to be the Lord's will. Well, I'm going to skip point three. <clears throat> it's good, but we don't have time. <clears throat> so this life of faith that Abraham is modeling for us has a lot to teach us. It teaches us that the life of faith is a personal, relational walk with the Lord. That, that phrase, I am God Almighty, walk before me. Walk before me. You know, in a sense, tune out all the voices, walk before me. You know, sometimes a parent will, will, will look at their children, you know, look at me, look at me. And, this, and that's what the Lord is saying to us. I'm God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and me alone. Take your cues from me and me alone. Take your identity from me and me alone. Take your confidence, your joy, your peace, your life from me and me alone. We saw through Abraham that a life of faith is, a, is, an, is an honest life. You're honest with the Lord. How am I to know? Is not an uncommon question for a Christian. How am I to know that these are true? Abraham's life teaches us that righteousness is ours through faith. Righteousness is ours through faith. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and the same is true for us. Our faith is not just that we're going we're to have offspring that number the stars. Our faith is in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and his person. And so in Romans 10, we read this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, King, God, that Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Abraham in his life is also pointing us to the crucifixion where our faith needs to rest as well. So when God walked through those animal carcasses, he was saying, may the covenant curses fall on me so the covenant blessings can fall on you. And that's exactly what happens at the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus takes on himself all the curses that we deserve so that all the blessings of the new covenant can fall upon us. And Abraham also teaches that we need to exercise our faith, activate our faith, put it into practice. We need to get in the rocket, strap ourselves in and say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Where are we going? As an example, here's Philippians 4.19, one of my favorite Bible promises. So applicable in so many situations. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We need to understand it. God's supply, my needs, according to his riches and glory. He's not a Scrooge. He's not a meager giver of blessings. He's an abundant giver of blessings. I need to see that it's true. This God who is speaking is trustworthy. But then I need to entrust myself to this promise. I need to see the actual needs I have or feel that I have which is a huge difference, but the actual needs that I have and then trust myself to the God who will provide for me abundantly in Christ Jesus. That's activating our faith like Abraham. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Abraham and the example that he gives to us of humility, honesty, but ultimately faith and obedience. And so we pray, Lord, that you would grow our faith, that you would grow our obedience. We pray that we would be quick to believe your word, quick to seek to understand it and what those promises are saying to us. And we do pray that we would entrust ourselves to you, Lord, Lord, there's no scientist that ever did anything in this world more trustworthy than you. Help us, Lord, to entrust our very lives to you. We pray in Jesus' name, who bore our curse, that we might receive his blessing. Amen.